0: Today, I want to talk about the CEO and co-founder of Palantir, Alex Karp. He's this extremely interesting figure because he's not a typical Silicon Valley CEO. He has all these weird quirks and he loves to ski and do tai chi. And he's very meditative. He studied philosophy, but he runs arguably one of the most boring enterprise software companies in Silicon Valley. But even so, he sells to the military. So we have to start with the story of Osama bin Laden, naturally. So the, during the Osama bin Laden raid, which I'm sure everyone has seen at this point with the movie Zero Dark Thirty, you know, you have these heroic Navy SEALs going out to Abbottabad on these stealth helicopters. It's extremely dramatic and tons of cia and fbi agents collaborating to track down bin laden but there's this rumor out there that palantir was actually used to sort through some of the data that helped capture bin laden and it's really hard to collaborate or hard to corroborate because so much of what palantir does is classified and obviously The military has a lot of classified information. So they can't really share all that much, but it was in this book called The Finish, all about the hunt for Bin Laden. And the author did specifically call out Palantir as one of the pieces of software that helped capture Bin Laden. So this is the story of Palantir. It's a very secretive company. It's really hard to find information about. For the first 10 years, of business. They barely did any press, any interviews. There's only a few clips out there, but I found most of them. And it's also extremely frustrating company. A lot of people hate this company because they say they spy on people and they help with surveillance. But I'm completely convinced that Palantir is a great company and a very important development for the technology community. I, I believe very firmly that American technology companies need to support America, need to work with the government, needs to support the military because the alternative is just so dire. And Karp is really at the end of it, regardless of what you think about his company, Palantir, just a fascinating CEO. He's incredibly focused. For a long time, Palantir did not pay people very well. They basically just had everyone on board doing this incredibly hard work, building this pretty boring software platform, doing data integrations, just because they felt like they were on an important mission and so let's start with the, the story of Alex Karp and then work through what he built with Palantir. So, you know, obviously today he runs a multi-billion dollar public company, but it's funny, everyone that you talk to who knows him refers to him as Dr. Karp. So I'm just going to use doc, Dr. Karp from here on out because it's, it sounds cool <laughs> and, it, and it is accurate. He does have a PhD. So he was born in Philadelphia in 1967 and his dad was a clinical pediatrician and his mother was an artist. And they're these kind of hippie parents. They're very forward thinking progressives. They took him to labor rights protests on weekends. And he became a pretty left-wing guy, which again kind of breaks people's brains when they think about Palantir because they think about it as this very like right-wing authoritarian company that helps the government. But really he has a very nuanced set of political opinions that we'll, we'll dive into. He grew up with dyslexia and obviously struggled with that, but did wind up graduating from Haverford College in 1989. And then he went on to study law at Stanford. And that was a really critical turning point for his life because at Stanford, he was roommates with Peter Thiel, the entrepreneur and venture capitalist who went on to build PayPal. And during their time at Stanford, while they lived together, they shared a bunch of classes and they would often spar intellectually. So Thiel obviously had founded the Stanford Review while he was an undergraduate student, and he'd already established himself as an outspoken libertarian. Even before they go to law school together, Thiel had given a bunch of talks about libertarianism, and Karp is on the complete opposite spectrum. He's really more of a socialist. But what's interesting is that normally, especially today, left-wing and right-wing thinkers don't really come into much contact. But Carp and Teal were constantly sparring, constantly talking about philosophy and politics. And they, they really became close friends and are, are still close to this day, which is kind of great to hear in, in a world where politics has driven so many people apart. So after graduation from law school, Teal and Carp they go kind of separate ways. Thiel goes off to the prestigious law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, and Karp goes off to continue academics in Europe. And So this is where D- Karp becomes Dr. Karp. He goes to study philosophy at Frank- Frankfurt University in Germany. And while he's there, he studies under this guy Habermas, who at the time was one of the greatest living philosophers in the world. And Karp earns a PhD in neoclassical social theory in the process. And This was another important turning point for him because up to this point, he thought that he wanted to be an academic. He thought he wanted to basically be Habermas and follow in his footsteps and become a philosopher. But actually working under him made him realize that he didn't really want to be like Habermas at all. He couldn't fill those shoes and he didn't really want to. So he starts looking at different opportunities to, you know, keep his mind active, but also provide more of a career. He often jokes that going and studying neoclassical social theory at Frankfurt is like the best way to become the most educated and least employable person in the world. But he was really connected with a lot of interesting people because a lot of powerful people, they study philosophy. They like talking about philosophy and politics. So, he he separates with Habermas. He does his he does, he actually winds up doing his PhD thesis with someone with a different advisor. But then he pivots, and this was right around the turn of the millennium, around 2000, and the dot com boom is going on. And Dr. Carp he developed a great network of high net worth individuals in Europe who are looking for new investment strategies. So he had a knack for investing. It seemed like he was just very very good at investigating ideas and working with people. And he was a very, very good judge of character, but he really didn't wanna take over the world at this point in time. Like, he really just wanted to build a small nest egg. I think he said he wanted to build up $250,000 and then settle into a casual life in Berlin and live as a dilettante, like just kind of chilling and discussing philosophy and basically relaxing. So he sets up this investment company in London. It's called the Cadman Group after his middle name. And he starts building towards that goal, making investments, but he doesn't really spend that much time actually investing before he gets a call from Peter Thiel. So while Dr. Karp is off in Europe, studying and doing this PhD that takes forever, Peter Thiel had gone, had already left Sullivan and Cromwell, left his job in the legal world, and had built this incredible company. <laughs> he he started this payments company, and then he merged it with another payments company that Elon Musk was building, and then taken the combined entity public under the name PayPal. And in and the company wasn't wasn't public for very long. In 2002, PayPal got acquired by eBay for 1.5 billion dollars, and this made Thiel a multimillionaire. I think the number is something like 55 million or something like that. But either way, Teal was ready to put that money to work. Like He was not done with his career by any means. He wanted to do more and bigger things. And right around 2001, obviously the September 11th attacks had happened. Teal gets all this money in 2002. And he starts to think about how he can have an impact on the world in a post 9-11 context with all this money and experience he has. Teal is obviously a very, very deep thinker. And With Palantir, he had this idea for using technology to stop terrorism, but there was a big problem that he needed to grapple with, which was there were basically two schools of thought. One was kind of the Dick Cheney neocon idea, which was, we'll have safety and security, but we have to give up our civil liberties for that. So we will 'll we'll, we'll have things like, you know, invasive security checkpoints at the TSA and constant surveillance on everything you do. And that will cause and that will stop terrorism, but it will obviously erode civil liberties. And then on the other side you had kind of the ACLU mentality, which was we need to preserve civil liberties at all costs, but, obviously we're going to have more terrorist attacks. And that's just the cost of maintaining civil liberties. So Teal really wanted to find a a way, a technological fix, essentially doing more with less to solve that. So Teal Teal identifies that, you know, technology is uniquely good at doing more with less. And he cites like, you know, if you you can use a technological fix to climate change and come up with the Tesla self-driving car and the electric car, and that can offset and that can offset emissions, and you don't have to sacrifice on the performance of the vehicle. Technology can allow you to have just as fast of a car, just as performant of a car without the emissions. And so the big vision for Palantir was, let's use technology to preserve civil liberties while stopping terrorist attacks before they happen. And they they wound up building a whole system for this. The two main factors are that Every piece of data that goes into Palantir gets tagged, and then there's a really, really rigorous audit log of anything that happens to the data within the system. So that should, in theory, prevent someone from abusing the system and using it to spy on someone who's not actually under investigation. So if, if there's a suspected terrorist, of course, the government can use Palantir to to research them and find out their connections and see how they might be planning an attack. But for everyday citizens, their information is essentially off limits. But building this was a huge, huge gamble. And it was you know a huge software product. And unlike PayPal, it wasn't a consumer product. So they needed to assemble a really strong team. So Teal pulls together a bunch of Stanford alums and PayPal people to build this product for the notoriously secretive intelligence community. And the majority of the early team were extremely young when PayPal got started. Nathan Gettings, Joe Lonsdale, Stephen Cohen, they'd all met Teal through either Stanford, PayPal, or Teal's hedge fund, Clarium Capital, but none of them were quite right for the job of CEO. And Teal was able to provide initial funding for the company. And the team of engineers was able to build a functional prototype, but they were really struggling to get potential investors and customers to take them seriously. This wasn't, you know, a viral consumer tech company that you could just build with no one's permission, like PayPal, you just set it up and people start using it. Uh, this is serious business, like you have to sell to the United States government. And and this is where Dr. Karp comes up as an interesting option. So, CARP had been introducing high net worth individuals to Clarium, Teal's hedge fund for a few years. And a lot of those individuals had relevant connections and knowledge to the global intelligence and defense institutions. So CARP is networking with all these high powered people and a lot of them know the intelligence community so it's kind of a good fit like he's already liaising and and acting as an intermediary between silicon valley and the more established defense sector so teal knew that they needed a real ceo who could work with big government people and no one thought no one on the palantir team thought that an old school business person from washington dc would fit the bill like they they did not want to go with some old school dc bureaucrat Carp was completely on the opposite spectrum. Like you hear him talk and he's just completely, he's, he's very casual. He's making jokes. He's riffing and then also citing all this crazy philosophy and history. He speaks a bunch of different languages. He's just a very entertaining but very different from a traditional D.C. bureaucrat. But I think most importantly, like he really understood the mission of Palantir and bought into that. He was extremely interested in preserving America and the Western order and Western society and stopping terrorist attacks. But he was also a really great judge of character. And so the team started building their product and they wanted to sell it to the government. But it would take a long time before they had a real impact. Like the raid on bin Laden's compound took place in 2020. 11. And that was nearly a full decade after the September 11th attacks. Palantir got started in 2003, 2004. And they really, really struggled for a number of years to actually scale the business, even though they were building really cool technology. And so it, but I mean, at the same time in the government, the actual, the actual process of finding bin Laden was this long, circuitous road. And there were tons of setbacks. And there's a bunch of really great documentaries and movies and TV series about, about that. But just a few months after 9-11, the government launched their first attempt at creating an anti-terrorism technology solution. The program was called Total Information Awareness, and the idea was to correlate detailed information about people in order to anticipate and prevent terrorist attacks before they took place. It's basically Palantir, but... They had, the government had a bunch of tactical errors that made this particular program a failure. So the man leading the charge was Admiral John Poindexter, who'd retired from the Navy in 1987 after the Iran-Contra incident, and but he'd been brought back up by the Bush administration to serve as director of DARPA's Information Awareness Office. So his goal was pretty simple. He wanted to bring as much information as possible about terrorist networks together in order to identify the most pressing threats. And he referred to this program as the Manhattan Project for counterterrorism. So he was going to put all these incredibly talented people together, build this system, and then roll it out in, you know, incredibly incredibly quickly, but it was a disaster. The total information awareness was to- was terrible branding. It made it sound like the government would be spying on every American citizen. They eventually renamed the program to terrorist information awareness, which is like way better, but it still did not go very well. They got a bunch of pushback in the press. And so in 2003, Congress defunded the program and Poindexter was once again, was once again retired. But it wasn't long before Poindexter got introduced to Teal and Carp because they needed to understand what kind of product the government actually needed to have to stop terrorism. And most importantly, they wanted to build a system that could catch criminals while preserving civil liberties. And that was the main problem with the total information awareness program was that it really seemed like the government was not taking the preservation of civil liberties very seriously. And so, so the goal of Palantir was really to, you know, find patterns in data and visualize them through a combination of computers and human analysts. And we'll go into some of the the human computer symbiosis in a minute, but you know, the general idea is that if there's something suspicious, then you look some more and there's this natural predicate that you build before you investigate people. And in that way, it becomes less intrusive. And the Palantir team was uniquely equipped to solve this problem because during the PayPal years, Teal had struggled to find fraudulent transactions on the payment network. Even though PayPal had signed up tens of millions of users, the company was losing $10 million per month to credit card chargeback fraud. It was crazy. And the issue got so bad that Visa and MasterCard threatened to cut ties with PayPal unless the company got a grip on the problem. So fortunately at the time, PayPal CTO Max Levchin stepped up and built a program to scan through transactions and flag specific behavior for manual review. And he actually called the program Igor. And he named it after the Russian hacker who had been like the biggest thorn in his side, which is kind of funny. But the important thing is that Igor didn't only solve PayPal's fraud problem. It actually wound up exposing the identities of two Russian cyber criminals who then the FBI created these like fake job postings for and lured the Russian cyber criminals to the US and then arrested them. So even though PayPal was just trying to cut off, you know, this fraud problem, they wound up actually having an impact on, you know, catching a bunch of cyber criminals, which is crazy. So, and the experience of searching for a few small criminal operations in the massive data set of PayPal transactions, like that proved extremely useful when they wound up building their first product for Palantir. And so the team, you know, they they, they start building Palantir, they they keep growing it. They. They needed a name, and so they come up with Palantir, which is from the Seeing Stones of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, at this point, nearly every Peter Thiel-affiliated project is named after some Lord of the Rings thing but the general idea was that you know they want to build this system that allows the government to 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 see kind of into the future and predict terrorist attacks before they happen they also set up a you know 7000 square foot office in Palo Alto and they nicknamed it the shire and you know the whole goal here's like they got to protect the shire they got to go to to DC and build this thing and and keep keep Palo Alto this safe haven for technological innovation and of course they, you know, they start growing their team of hardcore engineers who are focused on shipping fully functional products. And so the team, it, there's one crazy video from the Wall Street Journal back in the day where they, it shows all the developers and they're all like just drinking energy drinks. They have beds in their offices. They're playing Halo on this like network two Xboxes. so They can play like 12 people together or something. It's just like a total like grind session there but i mean it looks fun like these people are working hard and making a difference and so the the goal here is to build a program that can you know link all these databases together and then let anyone, not just programmers search and visualize the information that's in the database. And most importantly, again, everything that happens within Palantir software would be logged so it could be audited by authorities and classified data can't just be accessed by anyone. You need to have proper clearance and proper justification for an investigation. So they build this this first prototype and they really have to make a good impression. And they have this meeting set up and it's two months away. And they don't really have a product yet But in eight weeks, they have to go and pitch one to the government. And so they basically just built the front end and they didn't really have a back end. They just kind of faked it with, you know, fake data to, to, but they, but they really focused on making, you know, the lights and the fireworks and the front end look amazing. And it, it basically worked like, you know, people could kind of tell that it wasn't fully ready for prime time, but it was enough to get the government's attention. And so they the the main thing here is that it demonstrated that the Palantir team could actually build intuitive software. And a lot of that comes from the fact that it was built by engineers who had experience delivering products that people actually used regularly, like, like PayPal. Like it was clear at this point that they could, they could make a difference in the war on terror, but selling to the government involves like way more than just building a functional product. Like you have to win over dozens of decision makers and get through miles of red tape and there's all these approvals. And this, these early days were just extremely difficult for the Palantir team. Like they weren't really scaling revenue like they wanted to, even though they were building functional products, they weren't really getting rolled out as fast as they wanted. And part of that was because and Dr. Karp explains this, like they were bad at making their case. They just didn't really know what they were saying and people didn't understand what the Palantir value prop really was. Like they had, a, I think they had a hundred meetings and they were, everything was basically misunderstanding, one, one misunderstanding after the next. They, they'd go in, they say we have this tool, but. Palantir, the team didn't really understand the data sets. They didn't really understand the problem. And the military didn't really understand Palantir's language of Silicon Valley and, and you know, high throughput programming and iterative development. And, and Palantir was really, really staunch about not hiring people from the government. They were just hiring engineers and they didn't hire any suits. And so it was a really, really hard uphill battle and all of this was you know it was a dis- it was a disappointing setback to not be able to roll the product out to the government as fast as they wanted but it was all compounded by the fact that silicon valley investors weren't lining up to fund the company at the early stage like peter Thiel had poured a huge portion of his paypal proceeds into palantir i think something like 30 million out of the 55 it, i don't know it's a lot it's not just some small seed check it's it, it was a significant investment from him and basically no VCs backed Palantir at the early days. Like one VC spent the entire pitch doodling and then another lectured the founders for an hour and a half on how they were obviously going to fail. And of course, like this is all deeply ironic because now every VC is jumping over themselves to invest in in military technology and this these type of companies. But back in the day in 2003, 2004, it was an incredibly hard pitch. Everyone wanted to sell enterprise software to businesses or do small business software or consumer software. And this was just completely outside the norms of what was getting funded at the time. And this was also super ironic because Silicon Valley was built on top of strong partnerships with the American military. Like early semiconductor companies, they all spun out of government funded research labs and lots of early tech companies received funding from the Department of Defense. And obviously DARPA has had a huge impact on what goes on in Silicon Valley, but at the time, you know, no VCs really cared and they just wanted to focus on what they knew. And there's one guy in Silicon Valley who's been particularly frustrated by this over the years. His name's Steve Blank and he's a professor at Stanford who has studied how tech companies have worked with the military over the past century. And I love this clip of him on this interview show called The Realignment, where he says, you know, it's ridiculous that it's so hard to start these defense companies like Anduril, Palantir and SpaceX all three of those required a billionaire who's basically insane and just wants to do it, and and he says something specific. He said, "I think there should be people. People should be in jail for this. Like it's it's such a disaster for America that we've gotten to a situation where the only way to start a new major defense contractor is is to be a billionaire. It's just very it's just very very." Ridiculous and very bad for America, and so I actually flew to Stanford and, and sat down with Professor Blank and got to interview him and talk about like how how things got this bad, and it's it's a really interesting story. I mean, basically the 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 DoD just isn't set up to work with Silicon Valley at this point. There's this famous moment called the the Last Supper where the head of the DoD sits down with all the major defense primes like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and says, look, there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry. We're cutting budgets. You guys are going to need to merge or shut down and basically cut off all innovation and created this like really ossified oligopoly where just a few companies can thrive. And now if you look at all the defense primes, like they all just grow at America's GDP. Like that's, that's how they, they just get a slice of the pie and nothing's growing and they're not really innovating and they're happy to take, you know, billions and billions of dollars to build a new plane that we might not even need and go way over budget because they, they just get a fixed, a fixed margin on everything that they build. So it's a big problem. And it's something that, you know, Palantir was obviously started to address and Anderol as well is working on, but, The, basically the, the U S defense establishment has, has settled on just a few prime contractors to do business with. And so when they want a new software platform, they just, they don't talk to Silicon Valley. They call Lockheed Martin or maybe IBM. And so this created a huge problem for Palantir. Obviously if they wanted to break into the U S government, they would need an inside track, but this is, where Dr. Karp excels. He is a master of networking very clearly. Like if you see any video of him online, he's always at like Davos or Sun Valley. He's very, just for years he's been extremely well connected and this goes back to his investing career and his, his, the, the, the work he did in Germany. He clearly knows people really high up. And something happened with, with one of the venture firms that turned down Palantir for funding was actually willing to make an introduction to the CIA. And the CIA was running a nonprofit venture capital firm called InQtel. And there was a guy at InQtel named Gilman Louie. And the Palantir team got to pitch Gilman Louie on their idea for this integrated data platform. And basically, Peter Thiel and Dr. Carr meet with Gilman Louie and they explain how they have all these algorithms for fraudulent transactions from PayPal and how they think that there might be some value for the intelligence community. And they have this big brainstorm. And then they come back a few weeks later and they brought a mock-up and Gilman Louie and the CIA liked it. And they basically said, okay, we're, we're, we're in, we're going to bring your team in and we're going to put you on a counterterrorism problem. And so They, it was like, you know, this one pretty narrow pitch, but it was enough to get them through the door. So this is in like around 2005, it's hard to pinpoint exact years for this stuff, but it was clearly a a key turning point. Like Dr. Karp, he goes from this to being able to meet with lots of government officials and starts learning, you know, what will move the needle for them. And a lot of these meetings don't go smoothly. Like Dr. Karp is very, He's, he's, just, he's just a wild character and he doesn't really fit into the, the DC bureaucracy mold. And so the agency officials that he meets with are often skeptical of his relaxed style. And they ask him lots of questions, you know, was his team cleared to work with classified documents? Had they ever worked with intelligence agencies before? Did they have senior advisors with government experience? Was their sales force ready to work with classified information? And the answer to all these questions, of course, is no. But that doesn't stop Dr. Karp and the Palantir team from continuing to build. They they know that if they just build something that's so good, eventually they will win because the the, the alternative is, is so bad. And, and we'll go into like what the alternative was this time and it's, it's ridiculous. So everyone that they pitched could tell that even though they lack the credentials, like the team could deliver and there's this funny story where one of the probably CIA guys, they don't exactly say who, but, you know, a government agency guy goes to visit the Palantir HQ and, and they see sleeping bags under the engineer's desks. And like, no one is doing that in the government. No one is staying overnight, you know, building, if you're like an IBM contractor, building some software system for the CIA, like you you're going home and just turning on the the game and cracking a six pack or something like that. But the pace of play at Palantir was just completely different. And a lot of that comes from Dr. Harp and like how he runs the organization and the the the, the way he communicates the vision and inspires the troops and like really rallies the troops. And so, this guy Gilman Louie, the, the head of InQtel and the CIA's VC arm. He acts as like the anchor for Palantir at the CIA. And Inqutell actually invested in Palantir and continued to provide this conduit to CIA analysts in Langley. So every 2 weeks, Palantir engineers would fly from Palo Alto to Langley with an updated version of the software that they were building, and the CIA analysts would then test it out and offer feedback. And then, of course, the Palantir guys would fly back to California and implement all the suggested changes. And today, this is standard practice for Palantir. Like they still kind of do it this way with everyone that they work with. They even have a name for it. The Palantir employees that embed themselves within the customer, they're, they're called forward deployed engineers. And it's been really critical to their success because they, they're they working with these massive, massive organizations who might not have the bandwidth or might not have the skill sets to actually implement this software. And it's a huge deal because there's going to be so many things that you need to integrate when you're linking a bunch of databases, actually getting a couple really talented, really skilled Palantir engineers inside the building for maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, depending on how big the implementation is. Like that's hugely, hugely valuable. And it lets them win these like multi-million dollar contracts. Like to this day, Palantir only has like a few hundred customers, but Every customer is paying them like tens of millions of dollars because it's so valuable. And so there's this funny story about this two-week cycle that Palantir is doing, where where Stephen Cohen, the co-founder and one of the engineers who who's on these two-week trips, he he goes out and the and the government sponsor is introducing him at a meeting and says like, "Hey, everyone, I want you to meet Mister Two Weeks. He can build anything you want in two weeks. So ask away." and they're clearly just like amazed by him and yeah you know he 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 was definitely like at the at the point of burnout but and drinking a lot of red bull but it, but you know as you know he said it was the right it was the right kind of problem to have and so you know this this intense palantir culture like word of word of that intensity was spreading throughout the CIA throughout the government and and one in Qtel executive said that the most impressive thing about the team was how focused they were on the problem of how humans would talk with data. And this was a really, really hard problem to solve because obviously Silicon Valley's been working on this for years and PayPal's kind of solved this, but no one in the government really has any technology like this. It's, it's all just like really, really outdated. And so the CIA is a, becomes a valuable customer, but Palantir still has a lot of problems to solve. Like actually getting that problem of human computer interaction in correct in a way that would scale past a single organization, like that would take years. And so the basic idea is, you know, how do you expand, extend the human mind into an enterprise to get the full power of that human mind? Like the, a lot of these big enterprises, these large classified organizations, there's not just one data set, there's five or 10 or 50 and you have to integrate them. But most importantly, you have to integrate them in a way that both protects the sources and methods of like how the data got there, and then also protects civil liberties and privacy. So you need to create this like really functional tool that feels like you can get re- get results when you're using it, but also protect civil liberties and keep information private when it's supposed to be private. So it's a huge, huge engineering talent challenge that they're iterating on co- constantly. And so a lot of this comes down to this idea of like the centaur model, which is how humans and computers work together to be more effective than just computers alone or humans alone. And we've seen this in chess where for a while, you know, no, only humans were the best at chess for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov and all of a sudden computers were the best at chess. But there was a time when a human alongside a computer was better than a supercomputer. And so the the Palantir team really liked this anecdote and they and they wanted to find a way to balance what a computer does well, which is like store and categorize tons of information. And then what humans do well, which is finding outliers and making interesting connections and, and thinking about morals and ethics and, and actually making important human decisions. And so this is an interesting point where Dr. Karp starts expanding the team. And you know, he'd always been focused on building a world-class team and not just in engineering. And in 2006, he'd hired this guy, Shyam Sankar, to serve as the chief chief operating officer. And Shyam's still with the company today, but he's the CTO now instead of so the COO. But Shyam had studied this guy, JCR Licklider, who wrote about man-computer symbiosis and believed that the key to making good decisions in complex situations was not dependence on predetermined programs. Like we can't We can't turn everything into computer code and business logic. We need a human in the loop to cooperate and test hypotheses and explore different ideas, but the computer is essential in providing so much support on sifting and categorizing this data. And so Cheyenne has actually given a bunch of TED Talks about this and has talked about how terrorists are a classic example of adaptive adversaries, where if you try and build a computer program that just captures terrorists, they will outthink you. And this was the same thing that was going on at PayPal years ago with the fraud problem. Everyone who's committing fraud, they would try one thing. As soon as they get caught, they'd switch their tactics. And so computers, often fail to detect novel patterns on new behaviors, but humans do, humans can just notice it immediately. So humans using technology, testing hypotheses, searching for insight by asking machines to do things for them, Like that was the key insight. Like Osama bin Laden was not caught by artificial intelligence. Like that would have been impossible, but he was caught instead by dedicated, resourceful, brilliant people in partnership with various technologies. So this idea of human computer symbiosis becomes very, very important at Palantir around this time. And and this was another key turning point. You know, Dr. Karp, he'd successfully won over the CIA and Palantir software was finally starting to have an impact in the fight against terrorism. But there was still a lot more work to be done. You know, obviously terrorism is a threat in American cities, but it also thro- posed a threat to members of the U.S. military who were stationed abroad. So, you know, if you're in the army and you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, like you need to track and identify would-be attackers just as urgently as the CIA does. And so Palantir wanted to start expanding their product offering, but selling to the Department of Defense would be an even bigger challenge than selling to the CIA because they're it's an even bigger organization. DOD doesn't have the same inqutel structure, the same VC structure, but the Palantir team came up with an interesting idea. So D- Dr. Karp thinks that, you know, instead of focusing on lobbying the Pentagon like other major defense contractors would, they would introduce Palantir to soldiers directly. And so the plan worked like this. Basically, Palantir would contact soldiers and offer free training on their software then they would give out funding to support graduate work of soldiers who were going to be working with data when they deployed. So this creates internal demand for Palantir inside the military. So when soldiers actually go to deploy, they already knew how well Palantir worked and could start advocating for it internally. And, and this is really, really important because it's, it's really, there's no company that's really bootstrapped their way into the military like this. It's really hard. but by finding soldiers who were studying stateside, and then showing them Palantir, they got them the opportunity to actually get a feel for the software, and then be ready to use it when they go when they go out on deployment. And so, but it's easy to understate how how simple it is to you know explain one of these complex programs. I a couple of months ago, I sat down with Anduril CEO COO, Matt Grimm, who had actually worked at Palantir around this time. And, and he told me the story of when he was deploying Palantir to troops in the Middle East and they would come out with their software and they would kind of say, oh, we made the best thing. We want, you know, we want you to use it. It should just be amazing. But then people would try and use it and they would get very, very confused by extremely basic things. And he told me the story about someone who he was, you know, doing training exercise, training exercise on the Palantir software. And somebody raises their hand and says, what do you mean by right click? Because he told the guy to, you know, oh, right click on this button to access this feature. And the the soldier just didn't, had never used a computer, I guess, and didn't know what right click was. And so getting over that hump and realizing the, the gap between what the Palantir software engineers in Silicon Valley were used to and what you know, soldiers in the battlefield were used to was a was a huge, huge hurdle for them, and they really had to focus on user experience and making sure that the software is like dead simple to use because uh, it's going to be used under stress, it's going to be used in harsh conditions, it's going to be used by people who aren't techie software people, and and that's part of the problem that they need to solve. So. The Palantir team worked you know, hard to get these soldiers comfortable with the program and make sure everything was really easy to use. And eventually the plan worked and pretty soon, like high-ranking military offer, officers were meeting with the Palantir team to discuss using the software in Afghanistan. And this would have been completely smooth sailing because they had the best product, they had adoption, so everyone liked it in the military, but there was one huge problem the military had already signed up for a $10 billion project to build a similar system internally. And that system was called the Distributed Common Ground System Army, or or DSIGS-A for short, or just DSIGS. And this, the goal was to provide more effective capabilities to process, analyze, and disseminate intelligence data. It was basically designed to be like Palantir, but it never really delivered. all these big defense contractors had signed on to build D-SIGs but the product just wasn't working like the clung, the system was clunky it was prone to crashing but many military officials were invested in the program like they'd spent years developing the requirements for the program and wanted to see their internal program get adoption and you know when you're spending years and years of your career you're kind of building your career inside the military about getting this program off the ground if it fails like you don't you don't have a resume you're not going to get promoted it's 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 a big problem for your for your career and Palantir wasn't built internally by the military. It was built by this scrappy team of engineers in Silicon Valley. But but it was working. And and around the time, like there, there was this unit of soldiers that you know went up the chain and said, you know, hey, we have all these IEDs, these improvised explosive devices, and we have had a huge increase in the number of IEDs found because. And these are the this is the number one. Killer and wounding mechanism of the bad guys in Afghanistan. Palantir was working and it was winning over both ground troops and higher up military leaders. Both General Jim Mattis and Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster supported the program, but not every higher up liked Palantir. Things got really intense when Congress started asking questions about how much the program was costing taxpayers, and there's this crazy interview segment with General Odierno, who gets in this fight with this congressman about, and he's saying that like, you know, we have more capability today in our intelligence than we've ever had. You know, we've had 20 times the capability since 2003 and our our intel organizations have moved forward greatly. Like he was really, he was really aggressive about defending the DSIGS program and basically saying that like, look, yeah, it cost 10 billion, but that was over decades. And, you know, the program's working and it's gonna get there. But the thing is, is that when they actually polled soldiers, like the army ran a poll in 2012, 96% of military personnel deemed Palantir software to be effective, which is like pretty crazy high, high, high stat. Great net promoter score, I guess. And you'd think that this would have been amazing news for Palantir, but it wasn't. like things only got harder from here. And the reason is that the military basically ignored that report and kept doing business as usual. Like two years later though, after that assessment, the army had finally had enough with DSIGs and concluded that the system was basically inoperable. So the DOD began soliciting bids to develop a replacement to DSIGs. And you'd think this would be good news for Palantir, but it wasn't because the army refused to allow Palantir to participate in the bidding process because its software was an off the shelf product. So the army only wanted to hear from defense contractors who would promise to build an entirely new system from scratch. And you know, to some degree that makes sense. Like everyone wants something tailor-made to their specific needs. Like the army wanted a system that would be perfect and this was gonna be, and this was gonna be, a, the army wanted a system that would be perfect, but this was gonna be a disaster if it went forward. Not only was Palantir already good enough for the army, as evidenced by the overwhelming support from that poll, but the software was getting better every single day. When the Palantir team made improvements for one government agency, it would be easy to make those improvements available for the army. And this is the beauty of software. It gets better over time. But the army didn't have much experience building or running successful software programs, so they rejected Palantir. Dr. Karp and the team were backed into a corner. They knew that Palantir could make a difference on the battlefield, but government bureaucracy was getting in the way, so they had to sue the government. The federal court, and this is pretty crazy, it only took three months to get a decision, and they sided with Palantir. The judge said that the army had acted in, quote, an arbitrary and capricious manner and ordered that Palantir be included in the bidding process. And this was a big win for Palantir. They'd finally be a first-class citizen in the world of military contractors. But just as they'd solved this DOD problem, there was a new issue emerging. At the end of the day, the government just didn't spend all that much money on software. Like sure, the US spends trillions of dollars every year on the military broadly, but only a small fraction of that goes towards software. Like DSIGS was a $10 billion program, but that was spread over decades. And the whole point was that they were spending too much. And so you take that 10 billion, you spread it out. How is Palantir going to be you know, a multi-billion dollar company? It's just not going to happen. If Palantir wanted to scale to the size of other tech giants in Silicon Valley, they'd need to expand and fast. Dr. Karp, And his team had already raised money lots of money for palantir over the years and the goal was clear like they wanted to take the company public at a valuation in the tens of billions of dollars they needed to grow this business substantially to do that fortunately something interesting was happening around 2012. big data was having a major moment and large corporations were starting to store increasingly large amounts of data and this opened up an opportunity for Palantir to build a middle layer to stitch disparate data sources together and yield actionable insights. Dr. Carp and his team started expanding on Palantir's offering to solve a variety of problems for non-governmental organizations. So they partnered with JP Morgan to build financial software, and they partnered with a ton of other financial firms. They actually rolled out an entire product for finance to, you know, help with finding financial fraud if you're a bank or do other kind of quantitative analytics. They also worked with airlines to help optimize flight routes and even find fraud in mileage programs. And they also landed a big deal with Airbus to improve like nearly every aspect of airplane manufacturing, which is really interesting. It just shows you like how generalizable the platform that they've built is because really all they're doing is just stitching together a bunch of data sources and then allowing you to visualize and query that data. So the Airbus deal, this was particularly, it's a great example of how Palantir helps large corporations. So in 2016, Airbus was ramping up the production of its new A350 jet. And Airbus had a huge problem doing this. Going from manufacturing like a single plane to building dozens, it just increases the complexity exponentially. So you run into a bunch of problems, missing parts, production mistakes, communication glitches. They all wind up compounding when you're on an assembly line and trying to build dozens of one thing. And this can cause millions of dollars of cost overruns. And the worst part is that if Airbus delays delivery of a plane, the airline that ordered it wants to get paid for that delay because they're expecting the plane to be there on time that has an economic cost. So so it, it can be really, really expensive if there's if there's delays to manufacturing. And so Palantir, they sent five engineers to the Airbus factory in Toulouse, France, and these guys like set up shop. And while, while they're on site, they merged 25 different data silos related to the production of the A350. It's pretty crazy to think like, Airbus obviously has so many databases, but just for this one plane, the A350, they have 25 different databases that relate to different aspects. So that might be like, you know, the the invoices, the the part manifest, like how how what stage each plane is in. Maybe each plane has its own data source. It's it's crazy. But but by merging all of these, like the Palantir team basically d- delivered results immediately. And the Airbus guy who brought this software in was like effusive about it. He was super happy. And it reduced the number of days to fix production mistakes a bunch and it realized like hundreds of millions of dollars in savings. So even though Palantir was super expensive, like it totally paid for itself in this in this scenario. And, and eventually like they rolled out Palantir to thousands of Airbus employees. I think like 15,000 different Airbus employees use Palantir now. And and I think every single Airbus plane now has a sensor with that feeds data into Palantir on it. And so building out this air travel business, like it was a great idea, but of course, like this is right before COVID. So 2020 hits and now the, Aviation industry is in disaster mode. There's very little air travel and everyone's dealing with a massive pandemic, but Dr. Karp and his team figure out that, you know, Palantir can help here too. So they'd already had plenty of experience working with the government and handling sensitive data, which is obviously important in a healthcare context. And so they, partner with the department of health and human services and they merge around 2 billion data elements related to the outbreak to help government officials track how the virus is spreading and then they also partner with the united nations world food program to help deliver food and supplies during the pandemic they just wind up doing a bunch of different things a lot of those are you know just good press releases but the real silver lining for covid with regard to palantir was that before the outbreak they were spending an insane amount on travel. (laughs) It was crazy how much they were spending. Like they were very focused. They've always been focused on getting engineers embedded within the organizations that they were helping. This is the idea of the forward deployed engineer. And so Dr. Karp has some great quotes about this, you know, like if you're iterating on a problem that you wanna see be important in three years from now, it's better to have engineers figuring out what the core issues are and then iterate against them. If you want to optimize on revenue next quarter, or even the nine months, you want to be heavy on Salesforce, short on engineering, but they're dealing with the most important problems that they can find, dealing with them in a productized way so that they scale for the client. And because we're long on that and short on what happens in the near term, we're not planning to hire salespeople. So they're just really going into hire the best engineers and then put them right next to the problem embedded in these companies. But... This is super expensive. Like Palantir was spending millions of dollars flying all these people around the world and putting them up in hotels while they help their customers implement the software but COVID revealed that maybe they could be just as effective over video conference. So because they don't even have the option to travel, the company just naturally cut costs significantly. And interestingly, like revenue kept climbing. So today the company is in a much healthier position and like they're poised to continue growing because of this. And so it's one of those interesting things that, you know, they just probably would never have tested. Like, can we get by without all this crazy travel expense? But they were forced to because of COVID and it worked. But of course like the the big discussion today is obviously all about artificial intelligence and Palantir is also in a really interesting position because with, with regard to AI. So obviously large language models have taken the world by storm and every company that can claim even a tangential relationship to the technology has benefited like you see. BuzzFeed talks about, oh, we're going to use GPT-4 and their stock goes way up. And then who knows, it probably went down. But Palantir has actually been working on artificial intelligence for years. And so they've been building these systems for five, six, seven years, and they've been doing it in a classified environment specifically, which is very, very interesting. And there's a funny interview that Dr. Karp just did about AI and you can tell that he's annoyed because everyone's jumping on the AI bandwagon and it's very easy to put Palantir in the same bucket as all the other companies that are just riding the hype wave. But you don't have to take Dr. Karp's word for it. Like his co-founder Stephen Cohen studied under one of the best AI researchers in the world and actually gave a talk at Stanford a decade ago about his experience with AI. And so Stephen Cohen, he, he, he took a CS229 at Stanford under Andrew Ng, who's like one of the best, AI professors and history is this great open courseware class that everyone takes if they want to learn machine learning. And so Palantir, like their DNA is in the heart of Silicon Valley at Stanford, where all this AI stuff came from. and But there's another interesting side to the AI question, which is like, Palantir has always faced this criticism that they're more of a consulting company than a software company. Basically, everyone says, oh, they build too much custom software for each customer. And that hurts the versatility of the core product. But Artificial intelligence is like perfect for the situation because it's so it's super useful for processing information and gleaning insights from large data sets. So it will naturally make the product more generalizable. Like all the grunt work that needs to be done to clean up data and, 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 merge data sets, like this is a place where you can just start getting so much leverage immediately with AI. Even if it's not some crazy, oh, they're building a foundational model, they're not necessarily doing a lot of AI research at Palantir, but they're in a really unique place to actually benefit from kind of what's happening with AI generally. And then also, obviously, you're not just gonna copy and paste classified data into chat GPT. Like that's just not going to happen. And there's so many concerns about how AI models can use the data that goes into them to train. And Palantir has, you know, decades of experience at this point dealing with information in in secure contexts. Like that's just not something that uh, like a normal AI company is going to be able to deal with. The hard part here is clearly getting into that classified context, getting comfortable working with the government. Anyone can sign up for a GPT API key and start messing around with data. Very few companies can, you know, apply that, apply that machine learning to classified data at all because they just don't have the partnerships. So, the yeah, it, Palantir is in an, is in an interesting position. Like they're twenty years old, but Dr. Karp is still the CEO. And he still clearly wants to continue growing Palantir. Like he's still on all the earnings calls and giving talks and growing the business and expanding into Europe and talking about AI. And he really wants to continue to support tech companies that work with the government and the military. Like big tech has had a very tumultuous history with the department of defense. Palantir had to sue the government to get a fair shot at a contract. Well, while Google, on the other hand, they dropped out of this major artificial intelligence program, Project Maven, and it just, it just kind of shows you that Palantir had the right idea 20 years ago, but it just took so long to actually have an impact. So it's, it's incredible to see, to just learn about Dr. Karp and see what happens when you are so dedicated and spend two decades working on a single problem. It's really inspiring. So yeah, that's the story of Alex Karp and Palantir. Hope you enjoyed listening to this.